Welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and I am still recording in Belgrade, Serbia, where I have been for almost three weeks now. I am enjoying my time here extremely. It's such a beautiful and vibrant and fun city. And as the weather gets kind of cold, it's a little bit scary to be indoors because of the coronavirus pandemic, which is still raging in this part of the world, although not as bad as it is in Bulgaria, which is where I was hoping to be. Uh, but it's gotten so bad in, in Sofia that I've decided to spend my time enjoying the wonders of Belgrade. I actually don't know if I've mentioned this before on the podcast. I can't remember, but I, I have a newsletter that I do very irregularly, usually not more than once a month. And I wrote this morning a newsletter, a new newsletter, about the confluence of the Sava and Danube rivers, which meet basically right in Belgrade. It's really quite beautiful to see the confluence from the old medieval Belgrade fortress. So if you're interested in, in signing up for the newsletter, uh, I will leave a link in the show notes, or you can actually find a sign-up form on my website, which is just www.kristengodsey.com. But anyway, today I am going to continue reading the second part of the essay uh, from Alexandra Kollontai called The New Woman. And where we left off last time was her basically talking about this phenomenon of the, the single woman. You know, throughout the most recent history, as far as, as she knew at that time, you know, women were either going to be married, um, they were the property of their fathers, and they were shifted over to the property of their husbands, and then, you know, they were widowed, but then they, if they were widowed or divorced or for some reason um, ended up on their own or they ended up as old maids, they were sort of pitied by society, you know, sort of the, the kind of classic spinster sort of trope. And she is talking in this essay about the emergence of young, single, confident, independent women, um, many of whom are actually struggling because they're not really making enough to get by, but they are in fact single and the goal of their lives is not to get married. All right. Alexander Kollontai, The New Woman, part two. Single women, they are the million figures wrapped in drab clothing who pour out of the working class quarters in an endless train on their way to work sites and factories, who set out for the circular railways and the tramcars in that hour before daybreak in which dawn still battles with the darkness of night. Single women, they are those tens of thousands of young, already fading, Women who settle down in the big cities in lonely room cages and increase the statistic of independent households. They are girls and women who ceaselessly wage the grim struggle for existence, who spend their days sitting on the office chair, who bang away at the telegraph apparatuses, who stand behind counters. Single women, they are the girls with fresh hearts and minds full of bold fantasies and plans, who pack the temples of science and art, who crowd the sidewalks, searching with vigorous and virile steps for cheap lessons and casual clerical jobs. 
We see single women seated at a work table preparing a laboratory experiment, burrowing through archival material, rushing off to hospital patients, drafting a political speech. How dissimilar are these images to the heroines of the recent past, to the bewitching, touching women of Turgenev, Chekhov, to the heroines of Zola, Maupassant, the impersonal, good-hearted feminine types of German and English literature, even of the 1880s and of the beginning of the 1890s. Life creates these new women. Literature reflects them. Now, at this point in the essay, Kolontai goes on to a very, very long discussion of the representations of female characters that were very popular in the novels that were circulating at Kolontai's time. But of course, most of us today haven't even read or heard of these novels. So in this section, Kolontai is attempting to show how literature is changing to reflect the new status of women. And she does this by reviewing sort of the traditional representation of women in these novels that were well known in her time, but which have lost, you know, mostly been forgotten to us today. So I'm going to continue now with Kolontai after she's described kind of the traditional way that these women are portrayed in literature. How difficult it is for today's woman to cast aside this capacity internalized in the course of centuries, of millenniums, with which she tried to assimilate herself to the man whom fate seemed to have singled out to be her lord and master. How difficult will she find it to convince herself that woman must reckon self-renunciation as a sin, even a renunciation for the sake of the beloved and for the sake of the power of love. There are many of them, and they cannot all be listed in this brief sketch. But precisely the fact that there is such a profusion of these new women who daily appear on the scene in ever new and larger numbers so that their tainted likeness is found even in the boulevard literature proves that life creates and shapes these new types of women without let up. The new woman brings with her something alien that at times repels us because of its newness as a breed, so to speak. We peer at it closely, looking for the familiar, agreeable traits of which our mothers and grandmothers were the bearers. But the type who stands before us has broken with the past and harbors within herself a whole world of new feelings, experiences, and demands. Doubt rises in us. We are almost disappointed. Where is the engaging feminine submissiveness and softness of yore? Where is the customary ability of the woman to adjust herself in marriage to give herself, even vis-a-vis the insignificant husband, and to accord him primacy in life. Before us stands woman as personality. Before us stands a human being possessing a characteristic value with her own individuality who asserts herself. In short, a woman who has broken the rusted fetters of her sex. What actually are these characterological peculiarities, these new feelings and traits in the feminine psyche that allow us to assign a woman to the class of single women? 
Dominance of feeling was the most typical trait peculiar to the woman of the past. And this predominance of feeling at once signified woman's ornament and defect. The sharpening of the economic contradictions in the present, which has drawn woman into the active struggle for existence, makes it imperative that she conquer her feelings, requires that she not only learn to take the protean social obstacles, but that she also strengthen through the exercise of her will, her eminently passive, easily yielding spirit inclined to slackness. Women have to accomplish a much greater educational mission than men in order for them to be granted the newly fought for rights from life. Present day conditions demand from every woman who exercises a trade, a profession, a work of any kind outside the home, so much self-discipline, so much willpower in order to combat her feelings, as it was to be found only as an exception to the rule with women of the past. Jealousy, mistrust, the senseless female revenge, are not these the typical peculiarities of the women of the past? Jealousy, which lay at the bottom of practically all the tragedies of the feminine soul. Women's strong dependency on feeling has misled them to expressing their hatred of rivals in the most hideous forms and has led them to the borders of women's busiest, most slavish characteristics. If the heroine has not always exactly poured sulfuric acid over her rival, most probably she overwhelmed her with the poison of her slander. The new women do not want exclusive possessions when they love. Since they demand respect for the freedom of their own feelings, they also learn to accord this respect to others. Characteristic of this is the attitude of the heroine towards the rival as portrayed in a string of contemporary novels. We come upon a tactful, circumspect attitude towards the other woman rather than sulfuric acid and defamatory attacks. In the new woman, the human being increasingly conquers the jealous wife. The far higher demands made on the man are to be viewed as a second typical trait of the contemporary woman. The woman of the past had been raised by her lord and master to adopt a negligent attitude towards herself, to accept a petty, wretched existence as a natural fate. But she puts up with men's condescending smile over her feminine frailties and afflictions without demanding attention for that which she thinks, for that which she experiences. Do not men still express astonishment when their attention is drawn to the fact that hardly one of them has ever lent an ear to his wife, even during the minutes of the most intimate experiences. This boundless, inconsiderate attitude to the feminine ego was also the cause of family tragedies, formerly. The experienced Don Juans not only understood how to take a woman's body, but they also ruled her soul in that most of them acted out of the comedy 
of understanding, exhibiting a tender, solicitous attention to their unimportant ego, which her own husband inconsiderately and indifferently passed by. But Don Juan's came and went, and the lawful spouse remained, and in the course of centuries the woman adjusted herself to this life reduced her claims and demands, and oriented her conception of happiness on the gratification of the external, of what was objectively tangible. He gave her rings and earrings. He brought her flowers and candies. Ergo, he loved her. But when he became despotic and coarse, when he made demands and laid down prohibitions, this was perfectly within his rights, the rights of the master of her heart. The contemporary woman is demanding. She seeks for and enjoins esteem for her personality, her sensibility. She demands respect for her ego. She does not endure despotism. This insistence upon inner freedom recalls an old legend of women of the earliest times. Thy will has been done, but thou hast lost thy wife in me. Rosamund hurls these words at her royal consort when he forces her to drink from the skull of her murdered father. And this is no empty threat because she kills the man whom, up to then, she had passionately loved. The modern woman can forgive much to which the woman of the past would have found very difficult to reconcile herself. The husband's inability to provide for her material maintenance, lack of attention of an external kind, even infidelity, but she never forgets or forgives the non-esteem of her spiritual ego, of her sensibility. When the friend has no ear for this, for the new woman, her association with him loses half its worth. The demand set forth by women that the man should love and appreciate not so much the impersonal feminine, but rather that which represents their spiritual substance, their individual ego, grew naturally on the basis of self-knowledge as personality. I curse my female body, because of it, you do not notice that there is something else in me, something more valuable. And heroines of all nationalities repeat this protest in this or that form. The sharper the personality of the woman is stamped, the more consciously does she feel herself as a human being, the more sharply does she understand the offense that lies in the fact that the man with a psychology blunted in the course of centuries, was not able to see in the desired woman the awakening human being, the personality. These increased demands on the men are the warrant for the fact that so many heroines of modern novels hurry from one enjoyment to another, from one love to another in the wearying search for their ideal, harmony between passion and spiritual kinship the reconciliation of love and freedom, comradeship with mutual independence. Present-day reality disenchants all the ingenious seekers of a harmonious total love. They tear the bonds of love without regret and resume the search for their ideal, and thereby they forget 
that what they want to find now at best can exist as a life possibility only in the distant future among people with a new psychic structure, among people who have organically internalized the idea that comradeship and freedom must occupy first place also in love relationships. The woman of the old type had been altogether ignorant of how to appreciate personal independence. What would she have done with it anyway? What can be more pathetic, helpless, than an abandoned wife or beloved when she belongs to the old type? With the departure or death of her husband, the wife not only lost her material maintenance, but her one and only moral support collapsed. Unaccustomed to an eyeball-to-eyeball confrontation with life, the woman of the past feared being alone and was ready to free herself at the first opportunity from that independence, which she had found so unpleasant and unnecessary. The contemporary new woman not only has no fear of independence, she learns to appreciate it. Increasingly, to the degree that her interests go beyond the narrow circle of the family, of the home, and of love. The woman of the present feels in marriage a fetter, even when no outer formal bond exists. The psyche of the old human being that still lives in us creates fetters of a moral nature incomparably stronger than the outer ones. All the more stubbornly does the new heroine flee all that which could bind her to the ruler of her heart, even externally. It was material dependency on men, complete helplessness in life above all, that drove the woman of the past to structure her relations to the man in such a way as to ensure their indissolubility. Only then did she feel out of danger. The new woman, who is forced independently to bear life's burden, assumes either a rejecting or even an indifferent attitude towards the form of a firm bond. She is altogether in no hurry to determine her love relationship through a form. Every woman who exercises a profession, who serves any cause, an idea, needs independence and personal freedom. Up to now, the main content of a woman's life was directed upon the experience of love. Love, even for life overladen with material superfluousness, was still the most beautiful ornament. Conversely, the absence of love made a woman's life colorless, empty, poor. No outer blessing, no honorific distinction could replace the loss of love's happiness in a woman not even the joys of motherhood. When the heart was empty, life also seemed empty. It was thus that the women of the past distinguished themselves from the men. With men, their active life still proceeded side by side with their emotional life. And while the heroine pined away with longing for him, he, the husband, waged the struggle with fate somewhere in a world which the woman neither grasped nor understood. How many psychological plays are based on the fact that the woman waited longingly for him for the moment when he would return from his professional absence, from office or work, 
But upon his return, instead of occupying himself exclusively with her, he hurriedly wolfed down his food in order to rush to a meeting or took his papers out of his briefcase and eagerly plunged into his reading. His wife observed this with absolute incomprehension, her soul seething with reproaches. After all, she could have gladly set aside the blouse she had begun to knit. She could also, for his sake, have left the dishes piled in the kitchen sink and even put the children to bed early so that finally both could be alone, so that for once he could forget the tiresome things, business, work, politics, the office. Women of all social strata suffered from this incomprehension of their husband and his interests, which lay in an alien world, far beyond the borders of the domestic nest. This incomprehension of the male psyche was met with all women, with the wife, the professor, and the wife of the civil servant alike, of the writer or of the shop assistant. The wife's offended exclamation, So, already you're off again to your horrible meetings, often accompanies the husband today, regardless of whether he is a worker or a stockbroker. But to the same degree as the woman is being increasingly drawn into the vortex of social life, she proves herself as an active tiny wheel in the mechanism of the economy. So her own horizon, the walls of her own home, which separated her from the world collapse and unconsciously she internalizes its interests, which formerly were alien and incomprehensible, and she makes them her own. Love ceases to form the only substance of her life. Furthermore, it is allotted to the subordinate role it plays with most men. To be sure for too, there comes periods in her life when love, love, the passion, holds her soul prisoner, when her mind, her heart, and thereby all other interests are eclipsed and thrust into the background. At such times, she can experience the crassest dramas. She can enjoy and suffer like the woman of the past. But the state of being in love, passion, love are but transient periods in her life. Its true content is the holy that serves, the social idea, science, creativity. At her work, her ideal is for her, for in most cases, more important, more valuable, holier than all the joys of the heart, all the delights of passion. All right, I'm going to stop right there. And I'm going to just sort of reflect for a second on this whole passage, which I think is, you know, again, we have to take into account when this essay is written and really think about the context in which Kalantai is writing historically. Suddenly, she's reflecting on the fact that for women of the past, love and marriage were the most important things in their lives. And this re is reflected in literature. Women basically, most plots of most novels with female characters have to do with women's love lives and nothing really beyond that because they're sequestered in the home. And uh, the biggest dramas that occur are usually jealousies, infidelities, and threats to the relationship between the husband and wife, which the woman is terrified of. What Kolontai is saying is that in these new novels, in the new representations of women, women have a purpose outside of the home. 
women have work. They have a dedication to science or a career or creativity. They're writers, they're thinkers, they're participating in the economy in some way. And so even though, yes, they can still fall in love and yes, they can still be overcome by passion, just like men can, women increasingly are able to make love be a secondary thing in their lives, which is really new at the time that Kalantai is writing this essay. I think the other thing that's really interesting about this is the section where she talks about the Don Juans and the fact that sort of men who professionally seduce women, so to speak, do so by paying attention to women's personalities, women's egos, like actually treating women like human beings and not just like female bodies, which is what most men at that time treated women like just sort of because they're women, they could be disdain and nobody has to pay attention to their thoughts and their dreams and desires and internal selves. And what Kolontai, again, I think is pointing out here is that as women develop personalities independent of love and independent of the family and independent of marriage, as they actually become full human beings, become people, become characters, protagonists in their own stories, increasingly they don't just want love, they want comradeship. They want somebody who will love them, but somebody who will also see them as a full person, somebody who will also respect their quote unquote ego. I think this essay is really important because it does show that there's this sort of interesting shift that's going on in society. As women go out into the labor force, they're developing individual personalities. And as they develop these personalities, they're demanding more from men. And this is really what she thinks of, I think, as a product of socialism or and a future vision where she talks about people will have a different psyche. People will have a different sort of psychic structure because women will have personalities and men will start respecting women as equals. And when they start respecting women as equals, you will go from these dependent relationships where women are doing whatever their husbands want because he is their quite literal lord and master into a society where you have men and women who get to choose who they want to be with based on not just some kind of external, you know, uh, formal relationship, some formal bond, usually marriage, but actually through the choosing of compatible partners based on individual personalities, interests, passions, thoughts, intelligence, and so on and so forth. So I'm going to continue reading this uh, essay in the next episode. Uh, I'm not sure if I'll be able to do another one before I leave Belgrade, but I will try. Thank you, as always, so much for listening and keep up the good fight.